Welcome to FaithBridge Sermons Podcast. This sermon titled The Scandal of Grace features FaithBridge favorite Duffy Robbins and was recorded on Sunday, June 13th. Yeah, we want to thank you for tuning in. And if you live close by and are ready to visit, we'd love to meet you in person next Sunday at either 9 or 11 a.m. And if you can't make it in person, join us live online at faithbridge.org slash live. Here's Duffy. Good morning to you. Thanks so much for uh, being here with us this morning at FaithBridge. If you are joining us live stream, delighted to have you be a part of our community today. And if you're joining us from the chapel, thanks so much for coming this morning. Great to have everybody here. Uh, you, you know, uh, you can't help it. Um, sometimes you just, you, you, you hear um, famous people uh, misspeak. You know, they'll make some kind of uh, embarrassing gaffe, and, and as much as you want to kind of be polite, you just can't kind of help but, but chuckle. And, 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 and some of the uh, classic fumbles are, are pretty good. You know, like uh, boxer Mike Tyson said one time that he was afraid he might fade into Bolivian. Uh, or or the, uh, <laughs> the Pennsylvania cop who explained that uh, homicide victims very rarely talk to police. Uh, or, uh, or the uh, comment made by the movie mogul uh, Samuel Goldwyn. He was talking about making a deal with one well-known Hollywood player. And, and he said, that was like sticking your head in a moose. Uh, uh, or, 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 the, uh, or Yogi Berra, the classic line, it's not the heat, it's the humility. Uh, and then uh, the, uh, the, the pastor who kind of confused the groom a little bit when he said, it is customary to cuss the bride. Uh, and, and then, uh, I don't know if you remember, uh, Al Gore one time attacking George Bush uh, observed that a zebra does not change his spots. Uh, and then uh, my favorite, uh, in the classic uh, Britney Spears, uh, you know, kicking off her concert in Manchester, England by screaming to the fans, what's up London? And uh, yeah, it's it just kind of fun. I mean, the passage I mentioned, the passage we're going to study this morning um, in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 15, is probably one of the most uh, scandalous uh, passages in the Gospels because, because in it we hear what sounds like Jesus making uh, a, a major gaffe. You know, just, just some serious misspeaking. And uh, the fact that this is happening by none other than the Lord himself. It's, it's scandalous. So I want to invite this morning to turn me to Matthew chapter 15. Matthew chapter 15. And uh, if you don't have a Bible, if you'll just put your hand up in the air. These good folks coming down the aisle will be happy to give you one. Just keep your hand up so they can see you there. Matthew chapter 15. Matthew is the very first of the four Gospels. If you're looking for it, it's right at the very beginning of the New Testament. Matthew chapter 15, beginning, uh, we'll begin in verse 21. Verse 21. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, send her away, for she's crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. 
Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. It's kind of a crazy passage, uh, isn't it? Because here's this woman who comes to Jesus. Uh, she's worried about her daughter who is facing some kind of severe uh, psychiatric, maybe even a physical distress. Uh, she actually describes her daughter as being oppressed by a demon. Um, she's pleading for Jesus' help. It just sounds like he, he's basically telling her, no way, no way. You know, you go to the back of the line. It's not your turn for grace. Israel first, and, and then you Gentile dogs. I mean, it's just, it's just not a good look uh, for Jesus. You know, name calling and bad table manners and accusing somebody cutting in line. You can get, you know, kicked off the playground for stuff like this. And in essence, Jesus is calling this Canaanite woman uh, a dog. And by the way, this is a very, very awkward passage if you're the publisher of a children's Bible. Uh, this text has been hotly debated because um, Bible scholars uh, are trying to figure out what the heck is going on here. Like, like, like is Jesus prejudiced? Is he, is he heartless? Uh, or is he just grumpy? I even heard one uh, sermon where uh, the preacher just kind of paved over the whole problem by saying, oh, 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 Jesus just, just made a mistake there. Jesus, Jesus just made a mistake. Like, he's a nice guy, and he's God. Uh, but, oops, you know, uh, the word become flesh misspoke. Which is why this incident in Matthew chapter 15 is so worth our time this morning. Because in fact, uh, it tells us a very different story. An amazing story. It's a story that shows us Jesus being Jesus. A story that um, in, a, in a stunning and uh, dramatic, sometimes maybe even shocking way, invites every single one of us here this morning, every single person who's watching online, every person in the chapel, all of us to approach the healing presence of God. This is actually a story about the scandal of grace. The scandal of grace. Now, um, because this narrative has, has so many little twists and turns, I want us to take a bit of time this morning to kind of walk through it verse by verse. So uh, if we start off back early in chapter 15, um, we, we will see that Jesus had kind of a nasty confrontation uh, with the scribes and the Pharisees who basically talk a good game when it comes to the law of Moses, but who are, are pretty much empty robes uh, when it comes down to a faith of the heart. Uh, Jesus actually describes them in Matthew chapter 15, verse 8, by saying, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And suffice it to say, these scribes and these Pharisees totally looked down on the non-Jewish Gentiles, the, the, the Canaanites. They were just basically considered kind of unclean uh, lowlifes. And, and good Jews were supposed to, to keep their distance. I mean, you don't touch Gentiles. You don't talk to Gentiles. You don't go into their homes. You never friend them on Facebook. I mean, this was social distancing before there was social distancing, right? And in fact, unless it was absolutely necessary, uh, you weren't even supposed to go into the towns and the regions where Gentiles lived. So Matthew is already telling us something significant when he tells us in verse 21 that Jesus leaves directly from this encounter with the can't-touch-this Pharisees and crosses the border into the region of Tyre and Sidon. This is a region populated by 
Gentiles. So he wasn't just crossing a border. He, he was crossing a big cultural um, no man's land. And, and supposedly, uh, the plan was to kind of keep it all low key. But that's not what happened. Uh, because you, you may know that even though this region is on the other side of the border, uh, it's only about 20 miles from Capernaum uh, and the region of Galilee. And, and you can imagine when somebody is kind of performing miracles and healing people and raising folk from the dead, uh, that word gets around. And, and, and so you can imagine uh, when word gets out uh, that Jesus is in town, it's basically a, a first century flash mob. It would be like if a Chick-fil-A food truck pulled up in front of your house. Uh, you know, I mean, and, and that's when Jesus uh, is approached by this woman uh, described in the Gospel of Mark in his account of this incident as a Syrophoenician woman, a Syrophoenician woman, which means she's Greek. She's a, a, a Gentile. And, and since we're talking about, um, about speaking gaffes this morning, uh, two of my favorite are actually connected to this word Syrophoenician. Uh, because uh, I had a student in one of my classes who was giving a talk about this passage, uh, and he described her as the pseudephedron woman. Uh, and, and, and this was several years ago, many years ago. But I had a kid in youth group who actually described her as the neosinephrine woman. So she's kind of the patron saint of head colds. But, but, uh, but, but basically, Matthew refers this woman as, as Canaanite. Canaanite, which is, which is kind of a slang term for Gentiles. It'd be like calling somebody from Norway a Viking, right? So it's not exactly uh, complimentary. But look at verse 22 in the text. When this woman sees Jesus, she pleads, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. Now, it's interesting because here's this Gentile woman who, who probably doesn't know a ton about Jesus, but what she does know, she acts on. First, she calls him Lord. Okay, so that, That's a term of respect. It's basically saying, look, from what I can see, you're in charge here. And, and then second, she calls him son of David, son of David, which was, which was widely known uh, as the term the Jews used for the Messiah. So it's again, it's this woman's kind of saying, look, I don't know a lot and I don't even understand everything I do know, but I know enough to believe that what they say about you may be true. And it's precisely at this point that uh, everything gets a little bit awkward because Matthew tells us that in response to the woman, look at verse 23, Jesus did not answer her a word. Did not answer her a word. I mean, we don't know if there was a gesture or if he turned his head away uh, or if there was a nod or if he just flat out ignored the woman. It's like sometimes, you know, uh, when your wife asks you if, if you can fix that drippy faucet, you don't want to say no, but you sure as heck don't want to say yes. So your first line of defense is what? You didn't hear her. Play deaf. Play deaf. Jesus did not answer her a word. Now, that seems kind of weird, right? But the woman persists. She persists. She's even louder now. She's even more deliberate. She even started pestering the disciples, like maybe hoping they'll um, intervene on her behalf. In fact, she's so persistent, and, and they're so annoyed or embarrassed that they start to actually beg Jesus to please, for everybody's sake, do something to make this woman disappear. Matthew actually tells us in verse 23, his disciples came and begged him, send her away. 
Send her away. But you remember that quote several years ago from Sarah Palin when she said, uh, the only difference between a hockey mom and a pit bull is lipstick? Well, that's kind of what's happening here, okay? This woman goes from Syrophoenician to Sarah Palin in about one verse. And it's starting to get intense because it's clear at this point she's not going anywhere, right? She is fixed on two desperate convictions. Number one, my daughter's life is in danger. Number two, Jesus, you are her first and best and only hope. And it's when the disciples kind of plead with Jesus to do something that all of a sudden we kind of get this Almost like this open mic moment when Jesus seems to commit this awkward gaffe. This, he, he appears to misspeak. He actually says to the disciples, look at verse 24. I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Which on his face sounds like he's telling the disciples, look, she's a Gentile. You know? She's not our problem. You, 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 make, her, you make her go away. And in and, and fact, critics of Jesus have jumped on this verse because they say, you know, it's a sign that he was prejudiced, that Jesus was even maybe a racist when it came to the Gentiles. That Jesus' attitude was that Jews were God's chosen people and that everybody else God chose to ignore. And when you first look at the passage, you kind of have to ask, is, 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 is that true? Like, like, did Jesus really believe that he was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and that kind of low-life Gentiles were just sort of left out in the cold? Well, if he really did believe that and he was somehow prejudiced against the Gentiles, then it becomes very difficult to explain why in Matthew chapter 8, we are given two accounts of Jesus ministering directly to Gentiles. And in one instance, he exercises a demon-possessed man. And on a second occasion, he is so impressed by the faith and compassion of a Roman centurion, a, a Roman soldier, a Gentile, that he heals the guy's servant. In fact, after meeting that, that centurion, Jesus actually said in Matthew chapter 8, verse 10, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. In fact, and we've already kind of mentioned this, the, the whole dispute that happened in the early part of Matthew 15, remember this is because Jesus is rebuking the elites of, of Israel for putting their trust uh, in man-made traditions and thinking just because, you know, they were Jewish that, that God was going to automatically kind of give them a backstage pass. Over and over again, Jesus makes it clear in the Gospels that yes, yes, it's true. The Jews are God's chosen people. And he tells his disciples in Matthew chapter 10 that he was sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But that doesn't mean God has forgotten the, the, the Gentiles. And it certainly doesn't mean that the Jews uh, could choose to just forget about uh, God. And, and, and if all that's not enough, uh, you may know this, if you've ever read through the Gospel of Matthew, that back in chapter 1, um, there are three, three non-Jews, uh, three Gentiles who are mentioned in Jesus' own family line, his own lineage. So it, it's plenty reasonable to conclude that when Jesus speaks these words to his disciples in Matthew 15, he's not speaking them in, 
in any kind of racist way or, or anything prejudiced about Gentiles. And he's certainly not saying anything cruel uh, to, to the woman. In fact, it's, it, 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 it seems likely at this point that she doesn't even hear Jesus. Like she's still out of earshot. So you go, okay, all right, but, but, but why does he make this kind of odd comment? Why this weird, awkward encounter? Well, the most plausible explanation, as we'll soon see, is that Jesus is actually using this incident in part as a teachable moment. He wants to help his disciples uh, understand that he did not come into the world so he could turn his back on human need. And to help his disciples understand that the scandal of grace is that it has nothing to do with who's in the front of the line. In fact, let's, let's go back to the text. Look at verse 25. In a, in a kind of a last-ditch attempt, right, to save her daughter, the woman comes now directly to Jesus, kneels before him, and begs, Lord, help me. Lord, help me. But Jesus responds again with what at first blush just seems like a really rude comment. He basically says, verse 26, well, it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Which, you know, let's be honest, this sounds like a full-on insult to this Gentile woman. It sounds like Jesus is saying, look, God has chosen Israel. You're a Canaanite. That means that when it comes to the grace of God, you have to go to the back of the line. In fact, just using the word dogs would have been insulting because, because in and of itself, for, for Jews in the first century, dogs were like the lowest, the, the lowest of life forms. And even as I say that, I know some of you are thinking, well, now that really is an outrage. You know, I mean, you're not upset about what Jesus said to the Sidere Phoenician woman, but, but you're upset about what I just said about dogs, right? Because, because for some of you, dogs are the highest life form. There's like, there's like dog, uh, elephant, uh, octopus, uh, you know, porpoise, and then way down the line, you know, human beings, lower primates, middle school boys. And, 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 I, and, I, and I get that. I think most of us think of, of, of dogs as kind of a symbol of, of, of faithfulness. And, and for, how, many of you, how many of you are dog owners? Just put your hand up. Okay, okay. I knew it was going to be a tough crowd. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and I, and I used to love dogs. When I was a little boy, I totally loved dogs. Two things happened to me. Two, two things happened that kind of changed all that. Number one, um, I grew up in an era when, when there were a lot of TV shows with really brilliant dogs on. Like, I, I remember, you know, Ren Tin Tin and, and, and Lassie and... And, uh, you know, and, and it'd be tough, you, you know, I'm like, I don't know, nine years old, I've been all day sweating it out, trying to figure out addition and subtraction and multiplication. I come home, I want to turn on the TV, just chill a little bit. And sure enough, there's Lassie. And, and of course, you know, Lassie, I mean, she's kind of part uh, detective, part EMT, part family counselor. And, uh, and, and, and Timmy would go, well, what, where's Lassie, mom? Oh, she's out tuning the carburetor, dear. I mean, it was, it was intimidating. And then as if that weren't bad enough, our family dog, her name was Phoebe. I heard the laughter. Phoebe. I mean, you can imagine I'm standing with the guys and they're calling their dogs. Here, Turk. Here, Duke. Here, Spence. Here, Phoebe. Here, Phoebe. You know, I mean, I just kind of fell out of love with dogs. When Jews thought of dogs, there was no love. 
whatsoever. Uh, they, because they thought of dogs as kind of roving packs of uh, scavengers uh, that would prowl outside the city gates, just eating garbage and, and dung and, and the carcass of dead animals. Trust me, if you lived back then, you probably wouldn't let your dog lick your face. Uh, for Jesus, dogs were creatures of scorn. So this just sounds really, really rude, right? Like Jesus is kind of implying that this Syrophoenician woman is, is like a dog. I mean, I mean, come on, Jesus. And, and some have tried to kind of soften the blow a little bit by explaining, oh, oh, but wait a minute. The Greek word that Jesus uses here for dog is a more endearing term that means something like little puppy. A little puppy, like, like a little dog that would be allowed in the, in the house as a pet for the children until the dog gets bigger. So it's all good. So when Jesus uh, says dog, he means it in kind of a sweet, you know, cuddly, uh, Instagrammy kind of way. But I, I don't see it. I don't see it. To me, uh, you call somebody a dog at that time, it, that, that'd be like telling your wife, you know what, this is the worst pizza I have ever eaten. But I'm going to tell you something. I bet the kids would love tossing this thing around in the yard. I mean, I just don't think it's going to dull the pain in me. And that's why this is probably a good spot to stop and remind ourselves that when we are reading the Bible and, and we come to a hard passage like this, remember the printed words and, and narrated events don't always tell us the full story. Like, first of all, the, these quoted speeches in the Gospels, remember this, they lack any reference to tone of a voice, right? So, I mean, all of us understand this in daily conversation that tone and inflection is critical. I mean, the word no, just the simple two-letter word no can have all kinds of meanings depending on, on you know, how you actually say it. So you could say no, which means uh-uh, you know, or, or it could be no, as in, oh, really? I didn't realize that. Or it could be no, like, I don't think so, but I'm a, or, or it could be, uh, you know, absolutely not, which would be no, what? And, and, and it's just, and they, they, there's all the same word, but different, or, or think about like this. Uh, let's say you're a parent and you set down some edict for your 17 year old and he might respond with the word great, G-R-E-A-T, but that word can have a lot of different meanings depending on tone and duration, right? It, 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 when he says great, it could mean, oh, that's, that's, that's the most reasonable uh, edict you've ever, that's the most really great rule. Thanks for doing that. Or, or it could be like great, like not that again, or great, like that's just what I'd expect from an aging person, or, 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 or just like great, like you've ruined my life. <laughs> Same word all kinds of different meanings. Tone is everything. So we know that Jesus spoke those words in Matthew 15. Well, what we don't know is how Jesus spoke those words. We also know this. Jesus lived in a time in a world where people uh, would often speak in parables or Proverbs. And if you didn't understand uh, the parables and the Proverbs, or you weren't familiar with them, or, or if you took them too, too literally, you could really misunderstand what somebody was saying. You know, think about it like this. Let's suppose that uh, you, you didn't know anything about the story of Pinocchio. And somebody says to you one day, your nose is growing. You go, no, it's not. I mean, you don't really understand unless you know something about the story. So in a passage like this, that kind of puzzles us at first reading, maybe leaves us a little bit confused. You have to remember, we don't know the whole story. 
We don't really know if there was, if there was something uh, the woman heard in Jesus' tone or, or something she saw in his face or, or, or something about the way he spoke. But it's interesting, when Jesus said it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs, the woman seemed to understand it was a parable because she responded with an amazing combination of confidence and, and insight. She said, in essence, you're absolutely correct, but I'm not saying it's right to feed the dogs before you feed the children. I'm just saying that even the dogs get some scraps from the master's table. It was an amazing exchange because, because it shows that this woman understood that, yeah, the Jews were God's chosen people, and she was a Syrophoenician woman. She wasn't going to argue about who was a dog and who should get fed first because she wasn't coming to Jesus to demand her rights. She was coming to Jesus to plead for grace. She was basically saying, look, I, I, I don't have to be the first in line. I'm certainly not saying I deserve that. Just please let me come to your table because even the scraps from your table will be more than enough to meet my needs. And when Jesus saw that, he said, oh, woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. Matthew tells us her daughter was healed instantly. And you know, it's the only time in all of Matthew's gospel where Jesus describes someone's faith as great. And in this case, it really meant great. Uh, so, so, so this wasn't Jesus like misspeaking. This wasn't Jesus being rude or racist. This was Jesus being Jesus. You know, surprising, yes, scandalous, maybe. Uh, but, but, but this is this is Jesus telling us, reminding us that that that, that the kingdom of God is big. I mean, in some ways, it's actually pretty simple. What what Jesus did that day in Matthew chapter fifteen is he fleshed out two big truths, one for the disciples and one for the Syrophoenician woman. And every one of us here this morning or, or, or joining us from the chapel or if you're watching online, every single one of us, all of us are in one of those two audiences. Like some of us here this morning, we're disciples of Jesus. We love Jesus. We believe in him. We want to serve him. But sometimes, like Jesus' own disciples, we think we're the ones to decide who ought to be welcomed into the presence of Jesus, right? They're too this, they're, they're not enough of that. They come with a sketchy background. Oh, no, they're too much of a low life. No, they're too much of a high flyer. They're too liberal. They're too Republican. They're too different from us. Uh, they aren't the kind of people that are going to get chosen by God. This is precisely what Pastor Ken was talking about last week. When your mind is that Jesus came to seek and to save the lost, the lost, you see, just like us, just like us, the disciples were too willing to give up on and turn away from those who they thought were too lost, too, too far gone. In Matthew 19, the disciples try to send away children. And, you know, they, they're too noisy. They're, they're rambunctious. They, they want to understand. Jesus said, let them come. Let, let them come. Matthew chapter 14, the disciples said, Lord, there are 5,000 hungry people out there on the hillside. We need to send them away so they can get something to eat. Jesus said, you feed them. We've got more than enough. And here in Matthew chapter 15, the disciples said, Lord, 
send away this Canaanite woman. She's different. She's annoying. She's all icky. Uh, She's making us uncomfortable. Jesus engaged with her. Jesus listened to her. And he said, this, this is what great faith looks like. We disciples, all of us, we need to be reminded again and again that there is always room at the Father's table. There's always room at the Father's table. Jesus does not need his disciples to be bouncers to make sure that the uncool and the unfit are kept away from his club. And by the way, uh, you know, this is good. I think Pastor Ken reminded us last week, it's so important to be sure and recognize that sometimes we turn people away from the table, uh, not by who we exclude, but by who we fail to invite. I mean, maybe you've, maybe you've wondered about, you know, kind of sharing your faith with a colleague at work or a friend uh, at the gym or a buddy on the team or a boyfriend or a girlfriend or another, uh, a mom from school and thought, no way, no, no, okay. no, they're, they're never going to respond. They're too far gone. They're too proud. They don't even believe in God. Listen, not every desperate person is bold enough and honest enough to, to come to Jesus like this Gentile woman did. I mean, sometimes it takes a sensitive, caring invitation of uh, a friend. Uh, in fact, you were here last week, you remember Pastor Ken, he kind of talked about that. How do, we, how do we, in very simple and natural terms, uh, make this invitation clear? How do, we, how do we invite someone to have a relationship with Jesus? If we learn anything in this passage about what it means to approach God, it is that all are welcome. All are welcome. All are welcome. Listen to these words from Isaiah chapter 55. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Remember this statement from last week? That when we share our faith with somebody, it's just one beggar telling another beggar, where we found bread. There's always room, always room at the Father's table. That's truth number one. And it is the best news that this church can offer to this community. Nobody who comes by faith is sent away empty-handed. But there's a second big truth that we need to see this morning, and it's the truth lived out in the life of this Syrophoenician woman. Because you see, uh, it, it, it's true that, that nobody who comes by faith to the Father's table is ever sent away empty-handed. But the one requirement that he makes of us in coming to the table is that we realize our hands are truly empty. We got nothing to bring. I mean, it's interesting, you know, we start to consider, like, like what, what was it that, that Jesus found so remarkable in, in this woman? First of all, she was persistent. She was, she was persistent. Even when Jesus didn't answer her, she continued to call out to him. She, she somehow understood one of the most basic principles of faithful prayer, that silence is not the same as indifference. Just because Jesus doesn't answer her prayer, that doesn't mean he doesn't hear her prayer or care about it. She was persistent. She was, even when the disciples tried to shoo her away. In fact, the verb used in verse 22 for crying means to beg. And, and in the Greek, it's what's called this present progressive tense, which means you beg and beg and just keep on begging. So she was, she was persistent. 
But she also had ears to hear. She also had ears to hear. Do you know this woman, this, this Gentile woman, is the first person described in Mark's gospel as someone who heard and understood a parable of Jesus. She understands that when Jesus uses the dog language, he's not, he's not insulting her. He's giving her a parable. And she not only embraces the parable, she even answers Jesus in terms of the very same parable, right? Jesus said, it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. And the woman said, yes, but even the dogs get some scraps from the master's table. I mean, one of the Lord's kind of ongoing complaints about Israel in the Bible is that they do not have ears to hear and eyes to see. This Canaanite woman, I mean, maybe, maybe she didn't understand everything about Jesus and the Messiah, but what she didn't hear and what she did know, she took to heart. She had ears to hear and a heart to obey. But, but probably... From what we see in the text, what most moved Jesus about this woman was her humble faith. Her humble faith. She understood she's got zero leverage in this equation. That it was she who had the need and Jesus alone who had the supply. She wasn't thinking, as, as we so often do, of kind of striking a bargain with the, you know, with the big man upstairs. Or, or sort of imagining this fairy godmother God who, who just wants us all to be happy. Or, or that we're alive and that therefore we are entitled to happiness. She understood that in terms of her own righteousness and her own story, she was as desperate as a hungry dog. And she was grateful for even the slightest morsel of God's goodness. In some ways, it reminds me of the woman who had her portrait painted. And when it was over, she complained to the artist. She said, I don't like that picture you've done of me. It does not do me justice. And the artist said, well, ma'am, with a face like yours, you don't want justice. You want mercy. Well, 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 you know what's awesome about this Syrophoenician woman? Look at verse 22. She wasn't pleading for justice. She was pleading for mercy. That, that's why the great reformer Martin Luther was so amazed and moved by this passage. He wrote, here's a woman who understands the gospel. And in terms of our approach to God this morning, nothing could be more important because the scripture tells us that one of the biggest symptoms of sin in our lives is that we don't want to fully come to terms with our desperation and our utter need. We still cling to the notion that we can earn our way into the healing presence of God. We can somehow turn this desperate situation around. That somehow we can show God our religious resume or show him our portfolio of good deeds and good intentions or amazing accomplishments and we're going to be ushered right up to the front of the line and, and, and we don't think we need a savior. We think we need a life coach. But the Bible makes it very, very clear. We need to hear this this morning. That the only grounds for our approach to God is mercy and grace. A grace that gets paid out by Jesus' death on the cross for our sin. It's like the hymn writer put it. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. I wonder, I wonder if there are some desperate people here this morning that have come to hear 
this truth. You know, as Tim Keller put it, the good news of Jesus Christ is that you are far more wicked than you ever dared to believe, but you're far more loved and accepted than you ever dared to hope. Maybe what brought you here this morning, just like the woman in Matthew 15 was, you know, a concern for your children or for a daughter, a son, or or a marriage, or for your own emotional uh, or spiritual health. The lesson of this passage is that healing begins when we approach God with an honest confession of need and a bold, persistent belief that he and he alone can meet our need. What happened that day in Matthew chapter 15? This this wasn't Jesus, you know, misspeaking. This was not some kind of amazing gaffe. It was a portrait of amazing grace. Matthew chapter 15, this is Jesus saying loud and clear, all who are truly hungry and desperate are welcome at the Father's table. Come and eat. I hope you'll consider that uh, that invitation this morning as we close uh, our time together. We're going to spend some time this morning quite literally by sharing bread and a cup around the Lord's table. We call this communion because it reminds us of what is scandalous good news that we are invited into the community of the Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Not because we deserve it. We don't deserve it. But because Jesus, when he died on the cross, he opened for us a new and living way into God's presence. If if you you want to get a sense of just how scandalous that grace is, think of it as as inviting a mangy, dirty dog, a dog that's been, you know, maybe biting the hand of its master to actually come at your table without any regard for where he's been or what he's been into. Earlier in the service, Sully reminded those of us who are joining home or watching at home to to be ready. We want to have you share with us in this service of communion. So so we're going to invite all of us here today to take part in this. If you're a Christian this morning, you are invited to share with us in this feast, whether or not you're a member of this church. But if you're here today, and maybe like the Syrophoenician woman, you, you want to share in this table. You, you need to know you are absolutely welcome. All you need to do is confess your sin, confess your utter need, embrace the grace and the mercy of God that he shared and showed through the cross of his son Jesus. And just like this Canaanite woman, you can just pray. You don't have to understand everything. Just, just cry out to God, Son of God. Have mercy on me. You join this community, you're welcome to join this communion table. You remember the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed. He gave himself for us. He actually took the bread. And as he took the bread, he broke it. And he gave thanks for it. And he said to his disciples, take and eat. This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, likewise, when he had taken the bread, he took the cup. And when he took the cup, he gave thanks to God and then gave it to his disciples saying, drink from this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant. Pour it out 
for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Before we receive the elements, let me just pray right now. Consecrate these elements to God. Thank you, Lord, for the amazing gift of your son, Jesus, that because of his grace to us, all of us, although we are, we are like dogs, we've been brought into community with you. You've opened for us a new and living way through your flesh on the cross. And we receive these elements now in remembrance of your good gift. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Take and eat.